This is Speaking of the Arts, Mid-Missouri's only in-depth weekly art show, recorded in the heart of the Midwest, Columbia, Missouri, and broadcast each Thursday evening from 7 till 8 on 89.5 FM, KOPN Columbia. My name is Diana Moxon. On Friday, October the 7th, the 15th iteration of the annual Roots and Blues Festival rolls back into Stevens Lake Park for three days of music, including headline performances by Chaka Khan, John Batiste, Tanya Tucker, Wilco, Bleachers and the Old Crow Medicine Show. Over the past 16 years, the event has matured from what could have been a one-off event to celebrate Central Bank of Boone County's 150th anniversary to now a nationally recognised festival, which this year will feature 25 musical acts ranging from local musicians to artists that fill huge arenas around the world. But in many ways, the thing that makes Roots and Blues stand out is not who is on the stage, but who is in charge of the festival. Two women, Tracy Lane and Shay Jasper. And in the world of music festivals, as in the world of music generally, the fact that it is a women-owned, women-managed, women-forward festival makes it a rare and beautiful and almost magical creature. A 2021 study by USC Annenberg titled The Inclusion Initiative found that of 4,000 music industry executives at the vice president level and up, just 27% of those positions were held by women. White women, I should add. When you look at how many black women are in the executive ranks, it is just 3%. So the fact that our festival right here in Colombia is owned and operated by two women makes Roots and Blues extra special. And that is only one of the things that makes the festival a noteworthy enterprise. Remember 2020, that year when the entertainment industry stopped? Imagine that in December 2019, you had put everything you had into a business venture. And then three months later, your industry vanished. No live music. No venues, no festivals. Well, that was real life for Tracy and Shay. And so they both had to make a huge decision. Should they walk away from the festival they loved and now owned and find new careers or do whatever they could to save it, even if that included putting their home on the market? And so they did what they had to do, bust tables, worked as a farmhand, drove grain trucks, bartended. And thanks to their dedication in 2021, Roots and Blues came back from a year's hiatus stronger than ever with an all-female lineup and a new focus on making their festival a place where women were respected and family values came first. There were naysayers, as there always are, but they stuck to their ideals and brought the festival storming back last September. And now we are on the cusp of the 2022 festival, and I am so delighted that Tracy Lane and Shay Jasper are here to talk about what is coming up this year and how they continue to do the work to change their industry. Welcome back to the show, Shay and Tracy. Thank you, Diana. Thank you for having us, Diana. So, Shay, exactly... How rare is it for two women to own a major festival? How many others are out there? I believe we are the only one. And, you know, Diana, listening to that intro has me feeling all of the same emotions that we were feeling this time last year. I think Tracy can also um, vouch for those those very raw emotions. Um, thank you for that intro. Really appreciate everything that you said, because it is a very rare thing to be in our position in a 
despite despite all the challenges of the last two years, I, I don't think there's any place I'd rather be. I guess that being such a rarity in such a male-dominated industry, you probably have some fabulous examples of misogyny on social expectations that you have come across over the past couple of years. Tracy, any standout examples of that? (laughs) Oh, my goodness. Where to begin? Fabulous? I don't know if I'd use that superlative, but (laughs) (laughs) remarkable. Um, Yes, well, absolutely. Everyone that... We trust trusted advisors in this industry, which tend to be white men because that is just how this industry operates. All advise us that the all female led artists on stage would never work. And especially in 2021, as we were all recovering from 2020, it was just too great of a risk to take at that time. But I think after, as Shay said, after what we had been through in 2020, which you very eloquently just spelled out. And I I have to say there's a few tears coming down my cheeks right now. There was nothing that was going to, uh, I I think we became more determined than ever to adhere to our ethics, our values and our vision for what this industry can become. You had worked, Tracy, in the music industry for many years before you stepped away and ran Ragtag Film Society for what, almost a decade or thereabouts. What was your perception of the industry in the 1990s and and your perception of it today? Like how much or how little has changed over that 20-year period? In the 90s, misogyny was not just accepted, but it was just expected. I mean, if you were going to work in this industry, you were accepting the fact that you were going to be objectified on a daily basis. You were going to be questioned of your authority. I mean, I can't even tell you, I'm sure it's literally hundreds of times when a tour manager would show up to load in at the club and they would say, where's the manager? I am the manager. No, seriously, you're a girl. At least once a week that would happen to me. And also just beyond that, like physically being touched inappropriately. And uh, that was something that our industry would just say, hey, you know, that that's rock and roll. That's just rock and roll. That's how it works. And as a young woman in the 90s and someone who I actually started working at the Blue Note in 1991. And I was sitting, you know, I'd come home at night and watch the very new cable news network, CNN, and and see the uh, what was going on with Anita Hill. And I thought, yeah, this is how the world works. And I just have to suck it up and do this work and be objectified, be grabbed, be discounted, watch men accept credit for my work over and over and over again. And that's just, you know, if I want to be in this industry that I love, this is the playbook. So much so that when I decided to become a mother, my husband and I were both in the music industry at that time. And so there was no question which one of us would give up our career to have a child because it just really was not a safe place for women to work. I had experienced several scary incidents throughout the 90s, and there was no question, I'm going to be a stay-at-home mom and raise this child because this is no place for a mother to be. So when I came back to it after, I literally came back the year that my daughter graduated from high school. So I stepped aside for a couple decades and did other arts administration work outside of the music industry, and then was just fortunate enough to be invited to come and work side by side 
with Shay Jasper under the direction of Richard King. And Shay blew my mind because she was seeing this intolerable behavior and questioning it. And it really opened my mind to the fact that this culture is completely wrong and upside down. And then, you know, when we took over the company, we sat down and we wrote out our ethics policy of how we were going to operate this company. And then we decided, you know, let's not just change this for our local community and the people that we hire, but let's let's see what we can do on a national scale. Let's talk about this uh, nationally. And then we were able to find a connection with a PR firm out of New York who was really excited about our vision and who had also worked in the music industry in the 90s and was just in love with what we were trying to do and has been really, really helpful in getting us on panels to speak at music conferences and getting us national press to talk about making these changes. And um, I'm just so grateful for Shay because I don't think I would have found the courage to really make the changes I wanted to make without her by my side. Thanks, Trace. Shay, do you feel like you are seeing changes happen within the industry? You know, I I do believe so. Um, I wish it was at a more rapid pace. I think the fact that we're having these conversations still doesn't put the industry in in the most positive light. Um, I've spoken to Tracy at length about her experiences and, and how what we encounter on a daily basis, how that, how that's changed, but how really not that much. I think we still have a lot of work to do. I think having these conversations is, is important, but I, I just wish that we didn't have to continue to do that much more work to put these experiences, you know, out in front of folks um, and to just, to just, um, you know, have this workload be so much for other women because of these barriers. I think that's, there's just so much more work to do by men in the industry and by folks that just quite, they just don't quite understand how to make change. Right. Well, talking of that, I mean, you had this awful, awful year in, in 2020, but you've spoken about how it was also a gift of time to think about right. what you wanted your festival to be. And like Tracy said, to draw up your list of you know, of ethics of what it means. So Shay, would you talk a little bit about those conversations and what some of those big realizations you came to were? Sure. So in 2020, we didn't really, we didn't really see a path forward. We knew that there was, there was one, but we couldn't clearly see it. So we we made a list of all of the possibilities. You know, we made this wish list of all of these sometimes impossible goals and tasks, but we we just wrote them down. We said, no matter what it takes, we're going to try to make these things happen because at this point in 2020, nothing seems possible. So at, at the same rate, maybe anything is possible. And so we had that wish list and we, it's amazing. We, we find ourselves having crossed off most of those things that we thought were nearly impossible, as, as Tracy said, speaking on panels, getting out in front of people that aren't just interested in, in music festivals and who's on stage. Um, they're interested in what happens behind the scenes and women working backstage in, in a more safe and secure atmosphere. So yeah, that, that was the biggest piece. You know, we can't just keep talking about it. We can't just keep talking about the problems. We have to, to be the solution and make other folks 
independent uh, independently owned festivals and even folks who are more corporate to make them understand that they are they have a responsibility in this industry and uh, if we can do it certainly they can do it and on that front of the industry being largely corporate again you are bucking the trend by being independent promoters not tied to any bigger corporation right. so Tracy talk a little bit about how that alters your philosophy about the event you create and the community around you well we have to be very budget conscious every day I am the person looking at cash flow projections nearly every single day to make sure that we're on track And then, you know, we have like these Monday mornings collaborative vision sessions where we sort of go, okay, this is scaling upwards. So I feel really comfortable with this. We could even expand this aspect of what we're doing. Whereas this thing, we may need to scale this back a little bit, but also just the philosophical things that we can do that have nothing to do with income we're doing. For instance, access to the festival. One of the things that Shay and I um, set out to do is like, again, make a list. What are the barriers around access to live music? What are they? Well, there's accessibility, there's safety, especially as it pertains to gender at events. And that can be kind of related to alcohol consumption. And income is another. So we've tried to, as Shay said, okay, here are the problems what can we do to resolve these? Who can we talk to? We've reached out to organizations in our community who are more knowledgeable about disabilities than we are to get advice and direction of what does this community need to make it so that anyone can be a part of this this experience, that you can uh, get into the park easily and, and navigate your way through the park. And then when it comes to income, that's something that's, again, very personal to me because Having been a single mom in this community, there were a lot of arts events that I would have loved to have been able to experience with my daughter when she was young. But a single income family, there are challenges that you you have to make choices. So again, we're offering 500 vouchers to residents who live here in Colombia if their income is a barrier to experiencing live music that they can attend the festival for free. We also raised the age limit that children can attend for free up to age 14 with an accompanying adult so that families don't have to purchase a ticket for every single member of their Mm. family. And the accessibility opportunity, that's a piece that, again, I think is really personal to me because the first concert I ever saw was with my grandparents, you know, and um, there are a lot of grandparents who can't necessarily navigate 50 acres of uh, a grassy park, but we have carts for anyone who needs that assistance to take you from place to place around the park. And then again, you know, professionalizing our security and making sure that the perimeter is safe and that everyone feels welcome. We talk a lot about a welcoming space to everyone. I think trying to diversify what our staff and volunteer core looks like. Everyone feels safer in a space where they see folks who look like them. Mm -hmm. So again, when not everybody working for the festival is a white man, I think that that is a more inviting setting for, for everyone who isn't a white man, not to say that they're not welcome to, and we do have a white man on our staff, (laughs) but I think that's one of the things that we can really change 
in regard to safer spaces is hiring more uh, women, more people of color on the backside and the front side of our festival. So as you're walking around, everyone in our community can see someone that makes them feel a part of this festival. And I think a community event should feel that way. Everyone in our community should feel welcome. And one of the best ways that we can do that is looking at who is working in our space and who is playing on our stages as well. Right. I love everything that you are doing. It does feel like a very different festival these days. I also love how the festival has become much broader in terms of the sound of the artists. My sensibilities are pop and dance music. So over the last couple of years, I have found more artists on your lineup who I am interested in hearing. Shay, could you talk a little about how you decide who you want to put on the stage Or is that to some degree decided for you by what an artist's touring schedule is? Yeah, that's a a great question. We do get that a lot. Tracy and I, we sat down and we curated this this lineup from start to finish. We're currently talking about 2023 artists. So it takes takes nearly a full year to determine who's going to be out on the road, who we want to get, who's who's out there saying positive things, you know, saying what we're saying and who would feel good in the space and and be a part of what we're trying to do here. Um, that's kind of, we, we get a, a wish list together. And then of course we cross off folks just based on, you know, are they touring? Are they willing to get out on the road? Shaka Khan was, was the artist that Tracy had been asking for now for a couple of years, right, Tracy? Yeah, definitely. I mean, even when Richard was involved, I remember back in 2018. Yeah. So we have, of course, artists that we personally like, but you can't build uh, an inclusive festival and, and something for everyone if it's just based off your personal tastes. So we are listening to our fans. We're listening to what folks um, in our market and surrounding markets are listening to and enjoying. Of course, there's a lot of data involved. What are their ticket numbers looking like? When's the last time they've been in this area? You know, so all of those things kind of go into account. And like I said, it starts um, right around this time of, of year for for the following year. And uh, I would say it's the most fun and most challenging part of building this event. So having spent last year's festival really changing and rethinking who is on the stage, what have you reworked in the off season for this year's festival? Yeah, so um, I think in 2021, most folks kind of noticed a big difference in how the art and the look and the feel and the vibe was. We do have some some really fantastic changes coming in this year with art. The art piece will be a little bit more sustainable, a lot of light, uh, a lot of things that can be repurposed and not just stored away for a year, but will will really be able to just highlight the evening feel good vibe that you have at a festival. So yeah, so folks will notice that. But as Tracy mentioned earlier, you know, we really took a deep look into the security of the festival, the the back of house safety, and how artists feel when they come on site. We really want these artists to say, hey, you know, I don't know why I've never been here before, but I want to come back. We love to hear that. And Last year, we had a lot of artists who had expressed how impressed they were with with how things were running and how safe they felt. And so if we can keep that momentum, if we can keep that going, and, and we will, um, but that that's our mission and our goal to make sure that everyone feels safe and welcome. 
I remember from my art in the park days in the same park that at some point over the weekend, I would just find a quiet space on the hill and I'd allow myself a moment to wonder at this event I had spent so many months working on and feel all the gratitude for the people who had helped and who who I could see in front of me were now here volunteering. And I'd look out over this sea of happy people and all the little white artist tents. And I think this, this is why I worked so hard for this joy that I see before me that I get to share with my community. So I'm curious, what are your little moments during Roots and Blues when you get to have that moment of wonder? Tracy, do you want to go first? Sure, absolutely. I've always said when it comes to the live music experiences that I've had, the opportunity to be sort of the catalyst between this community that I love and the artists that they love to bring them together and then see the response. Back when I used to work at the Balloon, I had this favorite spot. And um, also the acoustics in this one spot are really good. And I still go and stand in that spot when I come see a show now, but it's, I'm close enough to the stage that I can look at the full audience and the people in the balcony. I just love watching their faces when that artist walks out on the stage, that immediate, you know, I, I, that's my favorite part when I get the opportunity to see that. And I certainly don't get to see it with every artist, certainly not at Roots and Blues, but when I can, yes, that's when I know, like, there's nothing more um, fulfilling in my work than to see that reaction and think, yeah, I made this happen. I brought these people together to share this moment. And that's, why being able to do more of this multi-generational kind of experience that we're creating in the park mm. is even more exciting for me, seeing families witness this thing together. You know, I I look forward to seeing Shaka Khan with my daughter. It's There are no words to express that. <laughs> but also to look out in the crowd and see the faces responding to this artist that maybe they've loved, like me with Shaka, they've loved for 50 years and they're finally getting to witness this live experience here in this community. Shay, what about you? Yeah, I mean, very similar to Tracy. And I'm standing, standing in the crowd and just taking a moment to turn around and observe, you know, the expression on folks' faces is is super magical. But I would say my moment of, oh my gosh, is you know, our, we have a command center director, her name is Lacey, and she's top 10 coolest person in the world. And She's so organized and there's this moment and I, I'm going to get emotional just thinking about this. There's this moment um, on Friday when gates open, she, she radios to each radio channel, you know, gates open, you know, heads up, gates open. She does it much more professionally than I've just done. But it's that, that second of very, uh, I'll call it healthy anxiety for me. Like, did I, did I give everyone here behind the scenes enough resources? Did I thank them enough? Did we, did we give them all of the, all of the things that they need to make this successful? And everyone on this team, they're such great planners. You know, Tracy and I were, we love to plan. We love to rearrange the room and and make things just so, but everyone on this team has their special little spark that they bring and they're so good at what they do. And so as much as we can plan, we do, but this weekend is still so organic because of everyone's individual little sparks. And I think that's the coolest part for me, that everyone is just so committed and invested 
and being a part of this weekend. Well, the 15th Roots and Blues Festival opens on Friday, October the 7th at Stevens Lake Park and continues through Sunday evening. You can find the full lineup of artists and other events like the 5K and 10K Betsy Farris Memorial Run, the food and craft vendors, and also about this year's inductee into the Missouri Roots Songbook. Spoiler alert, it's Jeff Tweedy, the frontman of Wilco. And it's all on the festival's website at Roots and Blues Festival. Tracy Lane and Shay Jasper, the community is indebted to you for your dedication to music in our community. And, of course, all the untold hours of work you put in year round to bring Roots and Blues to Columbia. Thank you so much. And thanks for making time to chat during the busiest two weeks of your year. Thank Thank you, you, Diana. Diana. There is so much to love about my next guest, singer-songwriter Cassie Ashton, who will be performing at Roots and Blues on Saturday the 8th of October. First of all, she comes from California, Missouri, so we get to claim her as a semi-local. Then there's her soulfully sultry and distinctive voice that is reminiscent of powerhouse singers like Amy Winehouse and Adele. There's the fact that she assumes creative control of all the aspects of her career, sewing outfits, designing choreography, plus she writes and paints and does her own graphic design. There's the fact that she escaped small-town California, Missouri, as she sang in her debut single, I Was Born in the Wrong Place, In the Wrong Time, which I can totally relate to. Then she bagged a scholarship to study commercial voice and business at Belmont University in Nashville, and that as a woman in the man's world of country music, she is building her career on her own terms. At the age of just 28, she's also a cancer survivor, was tracked down by country star Keith Urban, who asked her to be on his 2018 album Graffiti You, has toured with Maren Morris and her radio debut single Dates in Pickup Trucks, which launched back in February, was inspired by her granny. Oh, and she also grew up both riding dirt bikes and going hunting and being in beauty pageants and dance competitions. Cassie Ashton, I have to confess to being a bit of a fangirl of yours. (laughs) Thank you so much. Thank you. I don't know whether to start with the Keith Urban story or the dates in pickup trucks, but I think family comes first. So tell me about the call from your granny and how it inspired your song. So my grandma is one of the oldest of nine children, and she is down-to-earth, old school, and I say rough around the edges. She's <laughs> She used to put me up in the window at the farmhouse and say, pick a chicken, and I would point to a chicken, and that would be the chicken we had for dinner. So you can imagine that that sort of grandma making this phone call. She calls me. On her cell phone, which is already a red flag because she doesn't use that. It has an antenna, and it's supposed to stay in the drawer. <laughs> and she's giggling, and she also does not that, – that is not a trait that my grandma commonly possesses. And I'm like, Grandma, what what's going on? Why are you giggling? And she said, your grandpa and I went on a date last night. And I was like, oh, what did you do? They've been together since they were like 14, their whole life in California, Missouri. And she said, 
I made dinner, and we packed it up in the pickup truck, and we rode around on old roads we haven't seen in a long time. And so <laughs> I started giggling because, one, there's about seven roads in California, Missouri, so I would imagine the date didn't take too long. But also that my grandma is like 90 and still going on dates in pickup trucks. That's so beautiful. And so I thought... What what amazing song context and also hilarious for the backstory because when I was 17, I was going on dates in pickup trucks. And apparently when I'm 90, if I'm lucky, I'll still be going on dates in pickup trucks. Exactly, if you're lucky. Yeah. <laughs> so despite your hometown being a place you were desperate to escape in large part, it was also the town and the two totally different worlds you shared with each of your parents that created that escape velocity which catapulted you into your career so talk to me a little bit about growing up in california missouri and how it shaped you as an artist i definitely wouldn't take growing up there back or away for anything i'm so happy that i experienced that and i can go home to that it's nice to have the big city for my day job per se, and and then a small town to go home for Christmas or to hang out with my dad. But at mom's house, like you said, beauty pageants, classical ballet, art on top of art on top of art. And then at dad's house, deer season is bigger than Christmas. I shot muzzleloaders competitively. I'm daddy's little boy, basically, which makes for a very interesting and polarizing childhood because I wanted to be just as much one as I am the other, always. And I'm still, you know, after that same thought today, even 28 years in. And that also makes for an interesting upbringing because everyone in small towns, you know, fortunately and unfortunately, they all do the same thing. They all kind of, this is how you do it and this is how you don't. And if you're not in that small group, you're kind of an outcast. And so being such a weird art kid, that kind of threw me to the outside, which looking back now, I wouldn't change for anything because I think it made me, I guess, a bit more interesting. (laughs) (laughs) Do you think that, as you say, being daddy's little boy has helped you navigate that man's world of country music? I think it's just as much my mom's responsibility for giving me that skill as it is my dad's, just because both parents... They never taught me that being a girl, you would have to fight harder or that you were any different. It just was like you're going after your dreams no matter if you're a boy or a girl. You don't you don't you're not hindered either way. Like you deserve this because you deserve this as a human. So if you work to get it, you'll be good. Right. If I've got my math right, you graduated from Belmont University in 2016. Is that right? Yes. And then within two years, you had Keith Urban tracking you down. So first, how did he know of your music? And second, tell us about getting the email that had simply Urban in the subject line and said, Hey, K.A., I have this song I need swag on. Somebody told me you're the perfect person, K.U. <laughs> what an email. That's true. I So I graduated in December of 2016 and then... A year later, in December of 2017, I signed my record deal. 
And I am on Universal Nashville, and so is Keith. And so he had heard through the grapevine at the label that I would be the perfect person. He got my email address from the president of the label. And he emailed me that before I had even signed my contract. So I was freaking out. I thought it was spam. I almost deleted the email. And then when it was real and he was calling me on the farm and I had to not drop cell service in the middle of nowhere, it was all real. And I tried not to pinch myself. And it was a great experience. That song is a smash. Keith is one of the nicest, most humble, talented human beings I have ever met. I mean, was this beyond your wildest dreams? I mean, how did this propel you further into your career? I mean, once you're on a Keith Urban song, are you not just a legend immediately? <laughs> I don't I don't know. I don't know. Um, it really did something as far as people started listening, of course, more so they started paying attention. I think Keith gave this quote about how I was a unique creature somewhere between Tammy Wynette and Beyonce, and I have never been blessed with such a compliment in my life. And then one of the most amazing things that he did is he had me record me on green screen singing along to Drop Top. So when he's on tour, it plays on the green screen every single night like I'm there, but I'm not. So that was exposure right off the bat as soon as I signed my deal, and I can never thank him enough for that. Yeah, I watched the little video clip of him performing that with you on the screen in the background. I mean, it's just incredible. Yeah. From from the outside, it seems like you are this Nashville golden girl with all the right friends and all the right places. You've been named as a who to watch artist by various media outlets and you're getting recognition for your songwriting and performance. And I'm curious whether at this point you can look back at what you feel was a turning point in your career or whether you feel that that turning point is still ahead of you? I would definitely say it's still ahead of me, but I also think that I was raised to work and keep your head down and keep working. And I I don't know if that will ever change. And I kind of hope it doesn't, no matter what level I reach. I just every day am writing and being creative and trying to figure it out and not look back and let my head get big or anything. <laughs> Are you happier quietly writing songs alone in a studio or do you love that performance aspect? Are you kind of an introvert or an extrovert at heart? I am definitely an introvert at heart. I always laugh and joke that I like to go in a dark hole and create and be left alone and then run out into the spotlight and show it off and then run back to the dark hole. <laughs> but I have an equal love for both parts of that process. Obviously, I, I, I feel the most at home on stage when I'm making other people feel at home or not alone or like they're connected to the strangers around them. But I also feel perfectly alone in that dark hole by myself in my creative bubble. And then you make these fantastic videos to go with your music. And is that something that you also keep creative control over? Yes, so I am a I'm a visual person through and through and through. So anything you see, like you mentioned earlier, graphics, merch, website, music videos, that's all right from my brain. I make the mood boards and I'm really lucky to have a team around me that 
is really good at executing the vision that I give them and really giving me the reins. Let me ask a little bit about Nashville. I have this in my imagination. I imagine Nashville as this churning machine with a continuous stream of young songwriters and ingenues arriving at one end of their bus station that's all bathed in sunlight and an equal number of sad, exhausted, broke former wannabes departing at the dark, shadowy end of the station. What does it feel like when you're in it? Do you feel in control of your career, especially as a woman in Nashville? Does it feel like a constant battle for attention? I think if you get into the music industry and you don't know that it's about to be hard work and a battle uphill both ways type of thing, then maybe you should watch a few more music industry movies. I'm not really (laughs) sure. Um, But I think the best thing about Nashville is it is a community, whether it's a dark day or the sunny day, like you were talking about. We are all in this together for the terrible, depressing, broke parts and and your moment in the sun. We all have a dream, whether we like it or not. We, we are addicted to making music. We are addicted to writing lyrics and and connecting with people through this emotional outlet. And so it's hopeful and hopeless at the same time, and I don't think any of us would change it. And a few years ago, you got selected as a rising star by the Country Music Association and were one of the first three recipients of their Kickstart year-long mentorship program, which they launched to support emerging artists who were already out there on the scene but could use a little extra industry resources and support. How did that move your career along? I think that was 2018 or 2019 you got that, right? Yeah, 2019. That was an amazing program. Um, The CMA, when they came up with that and and posted auditions, we were all so excited because baby artists require a lot of help. Even if you have signed your publishing deal and your record deal, we're all just busting it, trying to make it work. And they let us interview with Garth Brooks and Kix Brooks and so many people that could be mentors and help us along the way. And they provided tour support for any shows that we were doing. And then my favorite part personally was during CMA Fest, we all performed at the stadium mm-hmm. for the big show, which was amazing. I had never played a stadium before. And I remember someone in an interview asking, you know, what do you hope for this stadium performance? Are you, you know, are you going to get jazzed up? Are you going to get hyped up? What's your plan? And I I looked at them and I said, I hope it goes by slow. I hope it goes by so slow. And it takes as long as it possibly can because I'm going to soak it up. Is there one thing overall that you kind of took away from that that you think about every day that you really use in your career? I think one of the biggest things was when we met Garth Brooks, the three of us, you know, we get ushered into a private room. He knew all of us by name already. He knew where we were from. He shook our hand. He looked us in the eye. He already knew so much about us. And like, he didn't have to do that. He was overly kind. He was overly prepared. He was overly generous with his information. And I remember thinking, if I am half as big as Garth Brooks and I can be this nice, I will consider that 
success. Well, let's go out with some music. I love your song, Dates in Pickup Truck. So, Cassie, give us another sneak peek into this song and then would you introduce it for us? Dates in Pickup Trucks, my first ever country radio single, is made to be driven along to. It is made to help you escape from the monotony of your everyday life, but also give you a hint of nostalgia that makes you think about all the times that you first had a date in a pickup truck. And didn't you say somewhere that you imagined if it, Martha Stewart and Snoop Dogg were out on a <laughs> getting high together? Willie really Nelson. <laughs> Willie Nelson, you're in a 57 Chevy with Willie Nelson and Martha Stewart and Snoop Dogg, and this is what you play. (laughs) Oh my God, I love it. Perfect. Here it is. I'm not gonna lie, it's boring as hell here. It's Friday night and I want some cold beer. I know you know just right where my phone is. Call it. Cause I know you like me, I like you too. We did this last weekend, but baby, it's cool, yeah. As long as it's with you. I ain't never ever gon' get tired of dates and pick up trucks in my lip gloss. I messed up, put a little something, something in a sonic cup when the sun goes down. Blue jeans with my boots, find a little trouble we can get into. What else you gonna do in a small town, in a small town, in a small town? But dates and pick up trucks. So let's throw a party Find us a back road and see just how far we can go I leave my body out the window And baby, if you wanna Keep the situation on the lowdown And when they wonder what happened We'll be sitting there laughing Said we were just hanging out Dating, got trucks But baby, it's cool, yeah As long as it's with you I ain't never, ever gonna get tired of Dating, pick up trucks That was Cassie Ashton singing Dates in Pickup Trucks, inspired by her granny and grandpa's own date night. Cassie will be performing at Roots and Blues on Saturday the 8th of October from 3.30 till 4.30. You can also listen to Cassie's music on Spotify and via her website, CassieAshton.com. Cassie, thank you so much for making time to chat today and I will be waving at you on Saturday the 8th of October. Yes, can't wait. Thank you so much for having me. I am looking forward to the show. 
Here is a lovely Roots and Blues story. Last year, Jen Norman, a singer-songwriter from St. Louis with a 20-year recording career in Nashville, came to Roots and Blues with her wife and their six-month-old baby daughter. Like the rest of us, they were visiting the festival as spectators and her wife commented on how awesome it would be if Jen got a chance to play at the festival. Flash forward one year and on Sunday the 9th of October, Jen Norman will be on stage at this year's Roots and Blue, so full points for manifesting a dream. Although Jen started out firmly in the lane of country music, these days she thinks of her music as more indie roots rock. And for the past few months, Jen has been in the studio working on a new album that is coming out imminently. Her music tells the stories of love and life, breakups and heartbreaks, relationships and healing. And with her latest single, Moon Baby, the story of meeting her wife and bringing their baby girl Luna into the world. And it is a song in which one famous Columbia tree is woven into the lyrics. When she is not in the studio, Jen performs as a solo acoustic artist, as well as in a duo and a trio, and with the all-female band Harmony Moon. And this evening, she is joining me on Speaking of the Arts. Welcome to the show, Jen. Hi, thank you. Thank you so much. We have to start with your connection with our famous bur oak tree and how that tree has become such an important part of your story. Tell us about your bur oak connection. Well, until just a few years ago, I wasn't really even aware of this beautiful tree. I met my wife back in 2018, and she had a connection being from the area herself. She had gone out to the Bur Oak one night on a full moon, the crow moon, and she was at a point in her life where she was just kind of making some wishes and putting some things out to the universe And it was just a few months later that she unexpectedly walked into one of my shows and we met and became friends at first and kind of went from there. Um, You know, and then she, of course, she introduced me to the tree and we've gone back many times together. And I was just amazed at how beautiful it is. And uh, all the things she told me about it, it was so true. And have you taken Luna to see the tree? We have. We've gone a couple times. We took her when she was real little and did did a few photos. And of course, she wasn't aware of of the special uh, <laughs> quality of the tree. And then we've we've gone back another time too. And uh, so we've we've taken her. I think two times. And the third time we tried to take her, but she fell asleep. <laughs> okay, <laughs> trees aren't that exciting when you're a year old, but maybe in future. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> So I would love to know about your journey from singing with backing tracks in restaurants and cafes in St. Louis to recording an album in Nashville. It seems like a story of incredible right place, right time serendipity. How did that all happen? Oh, gosh, it seems like another life ago. (laughs) Um, So, yeah, I started out real young singing and playing in restaurants and clubs and cafes and things like that. I had not yet learned how to play guitar, so I was just, like you said, doing the backing tracks. I got, it had come to my attention at some point a few years down the road that there was going to be an audition type thing in St. Louis and where all these people from Nashville were going to come in town. And so I, I was talked into going by a few friends of mine and I thought nothing would ever come of it, you know? I'm um, like, no, I'm not. I'm not good enough for this. I was I was like 21 at the time, you know, I was crazy young. 
And so I went and I, I met a guy there that was with a company called Capital Management out of Nashville. And uh, he showed some interest right away. And I mean, I, I didn't stay with him and his company very long, but he did bring me into the studio in Nashville and he got me a bunch of songs to record. And again, this was before I wrote my own songs. So, you know, we started there and I started getting some radio play, just little little things here and there. Um, then I eventually hooked up with another promoter that took me out on the road to just a few things. I mean, it wasn't anything huge, just um, a few areas, got me some TV shows in Nashville and just, you know, some appearances and things like that. And uh, it just kind of went from there. And I didn't didn't stay around Nashville very long, but I I tried to go back as much as I could and tried to get as much exposure there as I possibly could. I always think that that, that whole Nashville experience must be largely based on each person writing their own songs, being a singer-songwriter, yeah. but you didn't really start doing that until 2006. So yes. what happened that year that songwriting became part of your musical identity? Well, I think that I finally picked up a guitar for one thing. I had tried to learn to play guitar for several years before <laughs> that. And I got to tell you, it was not an easy thing for me. Uh, I was a drummer by nature. So I, I've i always been in music somehow, but I, I you know, did mostly percussion. And I'd been writing or kind of trying to write for most of my life. I mean, Gosh, I remember writing lyrics to songs when I was a little kid. And of course, they were terrible. But, <laughs> you know, it was, I just always wanted to do that. And so I just I was like, Jen, you have to learn how to play guitar. You can't depend on someone else to write your music for you. Um, so the first couple songs I, I wrote, I did have a good friend of mine that helped me out with, with writing some of the music. But then I finally, I I picked up a few chords and, you know, I mean, I haven't advanced all that much <laughs> guitar wise, but I'm just a rhythm guitar player and I play enough to write my songs and I've gotten better. But through the years, I've, I've, I, I think I've gotten better at writing. I started out probably really bad, but uh, as the years go on and the more I lived and experienced things, I, I started getting more in depth with writing. And it's just always what I've wanted to do, to be honest. So your first original album called Learning As I Go, great title, mm -hmm. came out in 2011. So you'd yes. been working hard at writing songs and learning guitar for five years by that point, which must have felt like an incredibly long time. And I'm curious how you kept your focus and determination during that time. <laughs> well, Yes, it was. It did seem like an eternity between 2006 and 2011. Part of that was just not really knowing how to go about recording, not really having the budget to record something that was decent, you know. Um, and I met some other, a lot of different musicians during that time. And one of the musicians I met um, is also from the St. Louis area, Summer Osborne. She had a small little record company. And she did recording out of her home. And I met her and started playing shows with her. And she basically talked me into coming to record and I guess made me feel like I had enough good material to record. So I went in the studio and I guess it was probably late 2010 with her and kind of slowly recorded that first album. 
the first one I did mostly acoustically, it's pretty stripped down, pretty broken down, which was how I played at the time, you know, so I I was used to the acoustic, solo acoustic, acoustic duo type stuff. I was super proud of that at the time. Um, I, I feel like I've grown so much since then, but that's that was my start and I was really very, very proud of it. So I was I was very thankful that I met someone that could help me out and make it affordable for me. Well, let's have a little musical break because I want to play uh, a short part from your Moon Baby single, which came out earlier this year. I know it's about meeting your wife and your daughter, Luna, but tell us a little more about the journey you take us on with this song. Really, the song itself, the, the story that it tells is literally exactly how things happen. I was in a a long, well, a seven-year relationship when I first met her, and I was not expecting anything. Um, I was miserable at the time. I, I don't want to sound, you know, mean or anything, but I had gotten to a point where the relationship I was in was not offering me what I wanted, and it just wasn't much there anymore. So the night that I met her and she came as you can hear in the song, she came walking into one of my shows with a friend of mine and it was just so unexpected. And, um, you know, we just, just started talking and getting to know each other for a while. And I knew what I wanted, you know, I wanted to be a mother and I didn't have Luna until I was 41 and I'm 40, almost 43 now. And so I started late, but I had no idea when I said before that my wife was making wishes and putting these intentions out to the earth, you know, to the moon. I had no idea that that was all going on. And I was going through so much in my life. And, you know, little did I know that just in a really short time, how my life would change so much. And just meeting her and beginning our relationship and our journey to creating our baby girl is just, it has completed us and me, you know, is something I've wanted my entire life and thought would never happen. Well, you just gave me goosebumps. <laughs> oh, well, good. I, I, I got to tell you, every time I sing this song, I have goosebumps. And the first several months that I that I played the song live, I could not play it without crying. And I'm trying to get better at that, but it means so much to me and her both. So it's it's special. Well, here it is, Jen Norman singing Moon Baby. Every 
was Jen Norman with Moon Baby. You started out being really into country, but over the past two decades, you have moved towards indie roots rock. Did you fall out of love with country or did you just feel like you could be more lyrically expressive within an an adjacent musical genre? Honestly, I think a little bit of both. I grew up really liking country. I grew up with gospel music, honestly, and I liked a lot of different things, different genres of that music. I mean, I grew up in church, so I listened to a lot of Christian country, Christian rock. I've always, at heart, I've always loved rock and roll music. I love, I love rock, and I love the fact that an independent artist can do whatever they want to do. And uh, so, I guess a part of me did kind of fall out of love with country music. It 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 seemed to change so much over the years. And it kind of came natural to me when I, it it does come natural to me when I sing, but it wasn't exactly where I wanted to be. But like you said, it, it, I don't know, being an independent indie rock, roots rock artist did give me more, more ability to express myself, you know, whereas I, I don't know, I feel like country music, I just was kind of in this little box that that I couldn't get out of. And honestly, I don't feel like, I don't feel like someone should have to choose a genre. True. I have such a hard time even describing my music. (laughs) And I don't know if I even describe it correctly, but it's just you. It's just Jen Norman music. It's me. And it's, it fits a whole lot of different styles that I like, you know, so. How did it come about that you got this invitation to perform at, at Roots and Blues this year? Did you meet Tracy and Shay or how did it all happen? Well, I have to give credit to my wife for that one. Uh, so after my wife and I got together, she she really has taken a huge interest in my career. And a lot of the things that I really didn't know how to do on my own or wasn't very good at doing, she kind of stepped up and she creates artwork for me. She's made T-shirts for me. She has just done so many things and helping me communicate with people. And she is from the Columbia area and knows a lot of people around there. So oddly enough, Tracy is actually an old high school friend or childhood friend of my wife's best friend. And she just kind of started communicating with Tracy through Instagram and Facebook here and there and just kind of putting my name out there. And she got me noticed somehow. So uh, she put me out there. So it worked. (laughs) I mean... I was so surprised when I got the email asking me to play. I was so surprised that I didn't even want to be happy about it at first. I was like, I was like, no, what if this is, this is too good to be true? Like, I don't know. She's like, oh, you need to read your email. (laughs) (laughs) Well, singer-songwriter Jen Norman will be open the MU Healthcare stage on Roots and Blues Sunday on the 9th of October with her set running from 1.15 until 2pm. You can hear more of Jen's music on Spotify and via her website at jennormanmusic.com. And Jen, thank you so much for bringing your music to Roots and Blues and for making time to chat today. I'll be waving at you from the audience. Oh, thank you so much. Thank you for doing this. And that is it for another week. 
All the Speaking of the Arts episodes are available as podcasts, which you can hear at speakingoftheartstransistor.fm. And of course, you can also connect through the KOPN website at kopn.org. to my guests this evening, Tracy Lane and Shay Jasper from Roots and Blues, and singer-songwriters Cassie Ashton and Jen Norman. Thanks, as always, to guitarist Yasmin Williams, whose song, Restless Heart, opens and closes the show. You can hear more of her music on Spotify and on her website at yasminwilliamsmusic.com. you so much for listening this has been speaking of the arts and my name is diana moxon i'll be back next week with more peaks behind the arts curtain until then stay arty missouri (laughs) 